you obviously can look at you know things that are going to be per se unlucky and you know visualize that in your head why it went that way. But at the same time, there are so many things that came in between you know, that unlucky inning and what things that I could have controlled, things I could have done better. Good morning, and welcome to episode 195 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballProspectus.com. It's me, Sam Miller, with Ben Lindbergh. How are you doing, Ben? Okay. Um, so we each brought a topic, and I don't know about you, but it's gotten to the point after 195 episodes where when I start looking for a topic, everything that I see that happens in baseball, I think, well, that's something we talked about already, and we should mention it to update yes. what's already done. <laughs> I've had that feeling more and more lately. Yeah. So like today, um, Manny Machado is raking. He's two for three with a walk. He's now got something like a 900 OPS. He's on pace to hit 67 doubles. He's a super, super duper star. And so that would update what we talked about on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Tigers and the Houston Astros are in the 13th. And uh, the Tigers right now have gotten two men on with one out. And uh, Brian Pena struck out. And the Astros might be about to get out of it. And so that would be like what we talked about on Wednesday when we talked about the joy of extreme extra innings. Mm-hmm. Um, but alas, we do have to come up with new topics. So what have you brought today? Uh, I have more like a a question and a comment. Uh, so I'm going to ask you something about bullpens and then I'm going to just mention something about steroids. And I want to talk about, oh, and the Tigers got out, uh, the Astros got out of it. So we're going to the bottom of the 13th. So, uh, yeah, we might be up late tonight. So I uh, want to talk about your article about Marcus Scudero that ran on Thursday at Baseball Prospectus. I also want to bring up something briefly that I observed today. So if, if possible, I'm going to start with that. Uh, today we are I watched, all over the place. We are all over the place. It's Friday. It's loose. Mm-hmm. Um, so today I watched Chris Medlin. And uh, I just want to I want to start with a caveat that I don't actually know what I'm talking about with this. So this is just my impression. We should and start every show with that caveat. I don't want to claim that I'm I'm observing some definite fact. It, it just just impressions. But my my impression watching Chris Medlin, particularly in the first uh, four innings or so, uh, was that he had he had really terrible body language. He looked he looked uncomfortable on the mound. Uh, he looked a bit. Uh, he looked a bit lost. He looked like he wasn't expecting to get calls. And later in the day, I watched Addison Reed, and Addison Reed also looked like he had bad body language, although a different kind of body language. He looked like he was he was tweaking. Uh, he was very antsy on the mound, very, like almost uncomfortably quick to get the ball back. Uh, and both of these guys, as I observed them, were not getting calls um, from the home plate umpire. And um, in... Medlin's case, uh, I think it, it raises some question about his catcher, um, who was um, who was Evan Gaddis. But in in Reed's case, I didn't notice the catcher's role in this as much. But but I was just wondering, theoretically, if if you had a hypothesis that um, that a pitcher's body language might also affect calls. Uh, Obviously, to a lesser extent than catcher framing, but to some extent, to just a small extent, a pitcher's body language might affect the calls he gets. Do you have any sort of idea of, of a methodology for how you would actually uh, enact that study? And I bring it up partly because I know Russell Carlton is listening, and he will do it on his lunch break. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, you 
you do have to kind of control for for the pitcher if you want to be rigorous about framing stuff just because certain pitchers hit their targets much more often and it's easier to frame a pitch if you know where it's going and are prepared to to catch it in that particular position so so there are adjustments for for pitcher that can be made but I'm trying to think about what you could do specifically to control for body language. I mean, I guess you, you would have to control for for their location. Well, you can't you'd even have do to that. Figure really. out, yeah, you'd have to figure out a way to, to measure their body language. Even if it was subjective, you'd have to figure out a way to at, at least assign a certain body language factor to each player. But then the, the question is, where do you get the cause and effect? I mean, Medlin... To me, I mean, I'm I'm watching Medlin and he's throwing pitches, and I'm thinking, well, I you know, I didn't want to give him the pitch because he looked like a freak out there. You know, he he looked weird. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, maybe he looks weird because he's already not getting the calls. So where's the cause and effect in that situation? Is it that he looks he looks uncomfortable because he's mad at the umpire, or is he mad at the umpire because he's not getting the calls because he already looked uncomfortable? It's a yeah. it's a hard thing to 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 to, to figure. Theoretically, I, I guess I, I could believe that it could have some effect. I, I, I was talking to Russell Martin last week, and he was talking about how he tries, he thinks there's like a, a rhythm of the umpire kind of, and he tries to to not upset the rhythm of the umpire and kind of lull the umpire into, I don't know, just, just yeah. feeling yeah. comfortable kind of and not not doing anything weird. I mean, not not like physically moving and distracting him, but just kind of like receiving the ball, holding it for the same amount of time every time he catches it, throwing it back in the same amount of time and just kind of being in that same rhythm he feels like helps yeah. him get calls. So I guess the that same... That is perfect. That is a perfect way of stating it. Yeah, so the same... Medlin took me out of that, and uh-huh. I could imagine he took a, an umpire out of that, and, and Reed did as well. Yeah, so that would be pretty tough to do statistically, I guess, but... But I could conceivably see it, seeing see it mattering. Sure. Manny Machado just popped out to second, but Nate McLeod homered, and the Angels are going to lose again. This is mm. this is incredible. The Angels are just never going <laughs> to. We should we should talk about the Angels sometime. Sometime, yeah. All right. So why don't you start? Uh, okay. So I just I have a, a question. I uh, Dave David Schoenfield at at ESPN Sweet Spot Sweet Sweet Spot blog. Uh, wrote something a couple days ago. Wrote a post called Brewers Need to Acquire a Reliever. Uh, and it was just kind of about how John Axford is is struggling and is, I mean, he's kind of lost his closer role and maybe has even lost his setup role. And so he was saying that they need to go get someone and not wait for the deadline because they have some talent and they shouldn't let the, the bullpen kind of derail their season, which it maybe sort of did last season. Um, and... I, I mean, just looking at the the numbers, it doesn't look like the Brewers bullpen as a whole has been awful. It's kind of middle of the pack. So, uh, and and Jim Henderson has kind of solidified the back end a little bit. So I don't know, but every team could conceivably use some bullpen help. But I wonder what you what you think about the idea or the suggestion that a certain team has to trade for a reliever, given your kind of belief that. That bullpens are completely unpredictable, and and a bad bullpen one year, there's no reason to expect it to be bad the next year, or or vice versa. Uh, so I wonder whether if a team has struggled relief-wise, 
you think that they need to go get someone or whether your attitude is just kind of it will resolve itself somehow? I mean, there's a there's an extreme point that you can reach. And like right now, the, I noted Nate McLeod homered. Nate McLeod homered off of um, Ryan. Um, uh, you know, I, I actually never learned how to pronounce his name. I, I think his name is Brazier uh, or Bra- Bra- Brazier or something. I mean, it's Brazier, right? <laughs> it's, 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 you can't avoid it being Brazier. Uh, and Ryan Brazier is a guy who I've known about for about four years because he threw a no-hitter in double-A when I was covering the Angels and I was doing like a minor league report every day. And the thing about Ryan Brazier is he's not actually any good. He, I'm shocked that he ever made a 40-man. I'm especially shocked that he's on the 25-man roster. Um, and he's only there because they've gone through literally every member of their 40 man roster. He is the last pitcher on their 40 man roster and he, every single pitcher on their 40 man roster has pitched this year because of injuries. And so, I mean, it, it would be dumb to, to deny that at this point the angels bullpen is a wreck and it would be great if they could go find a reliever, like as though there were some great reliever out there who could bolster the eighth inning. They, um, there's an extreme where it's 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 obvious but i think this is like one of those things where um for the most part unless something extreme has happened um most major league bullpens are within a small enough range that it's not worth sweating this uh the 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 day-to-day swings i mean the amount i've been in i've been in a lot of these manager meetings with um particularly mike sosha before games and the amount of energy uh, that is devoted by reporters who I guess are the proxy for the public to the bullpen is just wildly out of line with the amount of um, actual impact that the bullpen has. I mean, every single day there is a question about if not the closer, then the eighth inning, and if not the eighth inning, then the seventh inning. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just, it is a... um, it is a really easy storyline because none of these guys actually have any kind of, uh, like, like for the most part, uh, they are they are all fairly interchangeable, and so therefore you can very easily look at the last three weeks and say, well, why isn't this guy pitching, or how is this guy still in there? And I mean, I would guess, I mean, the Brewers the bullpen was a was a problem last year too. So I mean, I'm not knocking David Schoenfield or anybody who would. Uh, point to that as a as a flaw in the team but I mean realistically it's not as though you're going to go out and get the three guys who are going to instantly turn you into a top 10 bullpen realistically there's not anybody out there who's going to um, you know make a huge difference I mean these guys are all virtually I mean as a group these guys are virtually interchangeable with each other over the course of a season and that's especially true when you're talking about the the pickings that are available in May you could, I mean, you could find an Ernesto Frieri somewhere, maybe. No, you couldn't. I mean, you, <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, you couldn't. You could get an Ernesto Frieri, except that the Angels, the Angels traded Ernesto Frieri for Ernesto Frieri just about this time last year. It was, mm-hmm. I think it was early May last year. But the thing is that Ernesto Frieri was available for a reason. He was a, he was a lottery ticket. And it's not like the Angels expected this from him. The Angels expected to get the sixth guy in their bullpen. They gave up Alexi Amarista for him. Um, it's a total random one in a thousand chance. Well, it's not a one in a thousand because it's practically random. It's like one in four. It's like a one in four chance that you get an ace. And it's like a one in four chance that you get a guy that you wave two and a half weeks later. And it's basically... Uh, a, a much better chance that you're just going to 
get a guy who you forget about. I mean, Ernesto Freire was nobody's idea of a savior at the time. And if every team went out looking for an, an Ernesto Freire, um, one in a hundred would get their closer out of it. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So unless you literally need bullpen help because you don't have a bullpen uh, in that your your relievers are all injured and cannot pitch, uh, right. it's probably not not devoted not worth devoting that much energy to. I guess. Not at this point. Not yeah. at this point in the season. I mean, I look. I'm I'm over, I'm overstating the my position in the off season. I think it's perfectly fine to upgrade your bullpen. And you know, I like what the Angels did with their bullpen this off season by going and getting Ryan Madsen. It just and Sean Burnett, and it just goes to show you how unpredictable bullpens are. But if you can, I mean, theoretically, I think if you can go get 40 guys to bring to spring training in March, um, that's a, a great way to build a bullpen. Uh, in May, those 30 guys are all pitching in AAA somewhere, and it's harder to get them. And you're, if you put a lot of effort into it, you maybe will get two or three, and they're not going to do much for you. Mm -hmm. The bullpen, uh, the Brewers are basically stuck with what they got, and what they got is probably not that much different than what everybody else has got. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned at some point there was a, a post by Jack Moore um, who wrote about how teams with bullpens as bad as the Brewers last season historically just got a lot better the next season. I mean, not just the bullpen, but just the team improved a lot because the bullpen just kind of was okay again. Um, and probably a lot of those teams did something to fix the bullpen, but but maybe the, the bigger factor was just random stuff going right uh the other thing i wanted to mention was just an item uh it was an ap story that was syndicated in a lot of places on thursday and it was about the results of a uh, a study or, or a poll i guess it was it was called a study uh, of of how american adults rank the i guess the the importance of uh or 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 the degree to which steroid use among adolescents is a problem. Uh, and so the study was was commissioned or co-commissioned by the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, as well as the, the Taylor Hooten Foundation and, and the Professional Baseball Athletic Trainers Society. Uh, and it was conducted by Gallup. And the results of the study were that uh, American adults rank steroid use among adolescents as less of a problem than alcohol, bullying, marijuana, and sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, those polled ranked cocaine and eating disorders as bigger problems than steroids. 97% of the respondents believe that steroids cause negative health effects, but just 19% think steroid use is a big problem among high school students. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, you you often in Hall of Fame season hear kind of the, the writers refrain that we can't put baseball players in who who took steroids or may have taken steroids in the Hall of Fame because of the message it will send to the children. And it's a big problem among teenagers and you don't want to set the wrong, the wrong example and all of that. Uh, so this suggests that kind of the, the general public doesn't see it as a, a huge problem uh at least relative to to all of these other things and now relative to the uh relative to the cocaine epidemic <laughs> among our nation's youths right uh and i was it was interesting the quotes that accompanied the the results of this study uh so the the president of the hall of fame jeff idelson 
is quoted in this little article thing as saying that the study shows that steroids and performance-enhancing substances remain a mystery to the American public. Uh, and then Don Hooten, who's the head of the Taylor Hooten Foundation, uh, said some stuff about Congress doing nothing. And then uh, it quotes Neil Romano, the former director of the White House Office of Drug Abuse Policy and an organizer of the study, as saying, the American people haven't connected the dots between steroid use and our children. Uh, so I don't know whether these these organizations uh, commissioned this study because they were kind of hoping to to get results that would show that that people agree with them that it's an epidemic or a big problem or or what what their goal was exactly. But it seems like it seems like either either the results would be that everyone is worried about this, in which case they can they could talk about that or as the results showed that people don't seem to think it's it's a huge problem relative to these other things, then they can say, well, people aren't getting it. They aren't connecting the dots and steroids are a mystery to the American public. So I don't know. I, I mean, relative to alcohol and bullying and marijuana and STDs and all these other things that are problems for uh, or, or, or issues for, I mean, most adolescents or, or maybe a, a lot of adolescents. I mean, steroid use, it's not a good thing, I guess. It's, I mean, I, I'm sure it, it, it has ramifications, but just kind of the, the percentage of the teenage population that is ever going to be using steroids seems like it's never going to be as high as, as the percentage that's, I mean, you know, abusing other drugs, recreational drugs and, and other things. So, I mean, compared to, to those things, it, it seems like it makes sense to me that steroids would rank behind them and not that this is confirmation that the threat is kind of unrecognized. I, don't I know. yeah, I think that when parents talk about, st- uh, you know, the children in steroids, I don't think that for the most part, they're not actually talking about they're worried that their kids are going to do steroids. So I, I think that you're drawing a, a little bit of a false conclusion there. They, what, they, what they're worried about is that children are going to learn bad lessons about competition and getting ahead and that, you know, nine-year-olds whose hero is this guy who they think is great and perfect and larger than life is um, it turns out to actually have gotten there by cheating and that the child will draw some lesson from that or we'll just be so disillusioned by it that they'll grow up to be a cynic and cynicism is a pretty foul thing to have in your life so um i mean i'm not saying i agree with that i just think that it's a it's a little bit um uh different than what this this question is asking mm-hmm. okay but yeah yeah i mean very few very few teenagers are in any position to benefit from steroids it's it's never going to be a big problem with teenagers i mean it's uh, problem in as much as it, uh, you know, screws up the competition level at, you know, the high school football level or whatever. But I mean, it's a very small percentage of teenagers that are incentivized to, to do steroids. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I was just looking at this Tigers Astros game in the 11th inning. Uh, a, a runner was thrown out at home, which is like the third most exciting thing that can happen in baseball. Uh-huh. A runner thrown out at home in extra innings. It's almost impossible to top that. Behind 12, position players pitching and pitchers playing positions? I, I actually don't think that position... I think position players pitching is actually uh, like maybe sixth or seventh. I actually... While I like the specter of 
position players pitching in a game. Like I, I look, I, the the looming threat of that makes all games better. Mm-hmm. I actually find that when it actually happens, it it uh, damages the game because you know the end is near. It, that uh-huh. can't go. You can't go another seven seven innings when Darnell McDonald is on the mound. Right. So, uh, but on the other hand, pitchers playing positions is number one. You're, you're right. That is number one. I haven't I haven't decided what number two is, but uh, when Roy Oswald has to play third base, that's number one. Uh, so anyway, the twelfth inning, uh, two men on, Prince Fielder up, and uh, he grounds out. Thirteenth inning, uh, first and third, one out. And then uh, strike out, fly out, and 14th inning leadoff ground rule double, ground out intentional walk, intentional walk, bases loaded with one out. Mm-hmm. So we're waiting to see what happens. So this is just, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you can't you can't beat it. I'm basically right. yeah, I'm basically rooting against both teams at all times in those yes. games. I don't want to see any base runners or anyone in scoring position because that jeopardizes the the survival of of the game. So I'm I'm constantly rooting against both teams unless one team gets a lead. Yes, as am I. Oh, Don Kelly singled. Mm. It's 4-3. Four, it's, four it's going to be riveting a, for everyone tomorrow it is when a, this game it, is long over. <laughs> it is a bummer that they've gone ahead 4-3. to three. However, it's possible that if the Astros score one in the bottom of the 14th, that we will look back on this as the best inning of the game. Mm-hmm. A lot of things, see, the thing about extra innings is a lot of things in retrospect that you're rooting for turn out to have been the thing that you wanted to happen. It's just that the the margins between game ending and game going on are so perilously thin mm-hmm. that you don't you don't ever actually know how to root. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't get too ambitious. You just hope for outs. Anyway, um, you wrote today about Marco Scudero, mm-hmm. whose um, BABIP last year drove him to a career, really a career second half. Um, he was a he was a, an incredible hero for the Giants in the second half as well as in the as in the postseason. Um, and this year he's having a, quite a poor season. And the only real difference in approach or results is in his BABIP. And usually um, we would look at that and say, well, he, he got somewhat lucky last year. He got somewhat unlucky this year. He's in the middle. But you actually went ahead and watched something like 300 batted balls that he hit and logged how many were you considered lucky and how many you considered were unlucky. And you found that he actually wasn't lucky last year and he, he isn't th- unlucky this year, that he's basically getting outs when he should be getting outs based on balls being hit not hard and balls being uh, hit hard are turning into hits for him mm-hmm. when they should be. So the, I just want to talk about this because well, what are we supposed to do? I mean, we've been, uh, we've been using BABIP as a, um, as a, as a handy tool for the last you know decade or more. And as you found it, it creates a narrative that isn't actually really necessarily all that telling but you know we can't look at all 300 balls in play that a guy hits and decide whether he's been unlucky or not i'll speak Uh, for yourself you can uh (laughs) but but most people can't Mm -hmm. and and certainly we couldn't do it for every player no uh so i mean what what do you what do we what what do you think we're to do with babbit what is the appropriate way to to do babbit and and second question is do you think that there will come a time when uh instead of classifying every ball as a grounder line drive or fly ball as as baseball info solutions does that somebody out there like maybe it'll be us i don't know who it'll be but somebody probably with money will just classify every ball based on the likelihood that it should be a hit essentially creating an offensive version of 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 uzr mm-hmm. um where there's like basically a percentage likelihood that it will be a hit based on some freelancers impression of it and that we just completely calculate the batter's luck entirely 
Well, uh, taking the last part first, I think, I mean, privately, teams are, are at that point already um, using HitFX. I mean, I know these teams are using, uh, they're kind of just judging batters based entirely on, on their HitFX stats, and or at least coming up with, with models based on just kind of what the the run value of their batted balls is based on hit effects without even looking at the results of those batted balls, just looking at how hard the, the ball is coming off the bat and at what angle it's coming off the bat because certain angles are more likely to, to lead to hits at certain speeds. And so they're just kind of looking totally at the, the process of how hard you hit a ball and, and, and at what angle and not at all looking at what happens after that, whether there happens to be a fielder there or not. So... So I think teams are doing that publicly. I don't know how we can do that. I would I would like to do that, but uh, I mean you could theoretically record an angle at which you could record some kind of trajectory, and I I don't know if that would be accurate at all doing it from TV. Um, but I mean calculating the speed off the bat, I don't know. People are calculating hang time and stuff. So if you combine the hang time with where the the ball was was fielded maybe you can get an initial speed and then i, I don't know it's possible i guess i don't know that that it will be public though because that's a lot of effort to go to to collect that kind of data and you would need some sort of incentive to do it some sort of financial incentive is there going to come a point where all the cool stuff is all the cool stuff is unavailable to us and baseball analysis is just going to suck? It's just going to be yeah, super boring. I, I, I've been worried about that for a while. There was a BP event like a couple years ago where there was a a stats panel. It was at Foley's, the the bar in Manhattan, and it was it was like me and Corey Schwartz from MLB and and I think Vince Gennaro and I don't know if there was anyone else, but I yeah I, I was kind of I brought up the idea that that like maybe the the longer i mean the farther into the future we, we go the the less you and i and everyone else on the internet will know what we're talking about uh i mean when when baseball prospectus started baseball prospectus was i mean the authors there and the stats available to them was was probably way ahead of what most teams were using and what was available to most teams and so bp at the time kind of had this this tone like teams are stupid and making mistakes and now we don't really have that tone anymore and it's not just because we've kind of mellowed and grown up as a company a little bit it's also just because it's harder to to make fun of teams or or to make a compelling case that that teams are overlooking something that we're seeing because there's just i mean they have access to things that we don't and i know that I think we talked about after the Sabre conference how how Bill James or I wrote about how Bill James said that he thinks that the public will always be kind of at, at the same place as 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 front offices or ahead of front offices just because there's so much more brain power available to the public as a whole than to any one front office which is kind of sequestered and cloistered and doesn't talk to anyone else or share information with any other front offices so so there is that. There's kind of just more intellectual capacity behind the public. But but yeah, I mean, when every team has field effects and can track every movement a player makes on the field and analyze that, and we're looking at, you know, ground ball, line drive, fly ball stats, that, I mean, it's it's hard to to keep yeah. up. And so, it's depressing. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. So, 
as to your first question about Babbitt, um, I think a lot of times the, the traditional Babbitt narrative fits. And I mean, I, I expected it to, to fit with Marco Scooter. I expected to see that when he had a 360-something BABIP, he would have a lot of bloopers and slow rollers and and just guys with no range who didn't get to balls. And, and that this year when he has a 260-something BABIP, it would just be the opposite. And he would be hitting all kinds of line drives that were just finding fielders. Uh, and yeah, I, I didn't see that in his case really. And it's, I mean, it's a very subjective exercise that I did to kind of look through and and try to determine which hits were lucky and unlucky. I, I mean, I think I think it added some sort of value, but it's hard to say. It was just uh, I don't know. It's hard to classify those things. But but yeah, I, for him, I don't think it fit so well. I don't think he was just he was getting lucky so much. But but I also said at the end of the article that I'm not sure it makes a difference really in any kind of predictive or, or forward-looking sense. I mean, I think when we look back at, at Marco Scudero last season, we can say he was just a really good hitter for the, the last couple months of the season. So he was he was just hitting line drives everywhere and and getting the kind of results you would expect. And then and then this season, uh, he's just been hitting the, the ball on the ground a lot. And I guess he's had some sort of back issue that he's dealing with apparently. And and just doesn't seem to be hitting the ball as hard, and so he's not having the same sort of results. And and so if you just assume that he's the same hitter in in both of those samples, and that the results are different, but but everything else is the same, then I think you're you're missing something about what actually happened. But I don't know that it matters that much because when you think about it, I mean, Marco Scudero is is not going to be able to sustain a, a 360-something BABIP regardless of why he did it, whether he was fluking into hits that weren't actually hit all that hard or whether he just was actually hitting everything hard for a couple months. Uh, we know that he's not that kind of hitter in the long run and, and is not suddenly becoming that kind of hitter at, at his age. So so really, I don't know that it's any more sustainable, um, you know, that right. that he was good for a while than it would have been if he would if he had just been lucky and fluky for a while. Either way, it's gonna gonna come to an end. So it it's more of a a descriptive sense, I guess. And and that's yeah. true for Marco Scudero. Maybe it's not true for for everyone. Maybe with a, a young player who doesn't have that kind of established uh, career BABIP that we can look at and say he's that kind of guy. If it's a rookie or something and we don't necessarily know what his baseline is, then then maybe you would want to take that into account. Yeah, I think that it probably it's the case that we too often limit our ideas of luck to um, to what percentage of line drives fall, ground balls fall, and fly balls fall, when in fact, once you have a sort of an idea about the player's true talent level, and presuming that that true talent level hasn't changed, and that, that, that obviously the problem is trying to figure out precisely when a player's true talent level has changed, but presuming it hasn't changed, I feel like there's a lot of luck simply in what percentage of line drives he hits that, you know, essentially um, the difference between a home run and a swing and a miss is a quarter of an inch. And, um, you know, over the course of a couple hundred at bats, I don't think that luck changes either. Even if, even if you look at the batted balls, I don't think that necessarily tells you whether he's, he's, he's been unlucky or not. Um, So, yeah, but I mean, of course the, the, the golden goose or, 
whatever. That's not the right word. But the thing that you want to find is you want to figure out the way to identify Marco Scudero falling apart when it is real as opposed mm-hmm. to when it's it's not real. And and so, you you know, you have no real choice but to do what, what we do um, and uh, assume that you're going to get a lot of false positives. The Tigers scored four in the top of the 14th, which, again, it seems like the worst-case scenario because there's virtually no chance this game is going to keep going. But just imagine if the Astros score four and exactly four, like not, not five, but four. How incredible. This is like a, an instant epic yes. if, it, if they just score four. So it's, it's always hard to know whether you're seeing a good thing or a bad thing. Unless you're right. listening to a podcast hours later. Uh, well, but actually, there are a couple of people like uh, Eric Hartman. Hi, Eric, uh, who is going to listen to this probably before the game is even <laughs> yes. over. So uh, we're going to end it now. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with episode 196. Email us your questions at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and have a great weekend.